it told us how close we were to the edge. But the GDP also revealed that in the last few months, the economy has done measurably better than we had thought. Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Friday, July 31st. On the show today, we celebrate the genius of Wall Street and how their fabulous, wonderful financial innovation has benefited all of us. You really love to provoke, don't you? I really, really do. <laughs> we're going to be doing that, but we're also going to have a sober discussion of the perils and pros of financial innovation that's coming up. Yeah, it's not just provoking. It's hopefully thoughtful and helpful in thinking about this moment in history. But first, the Planet Money Indicator. It is a thrilling negative 1%. We are ecstatic to be able to report to you that the U.S. economy slowed down by only 1% on an annualized basis between April and June of this year. That's according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Right. One more example of what seems like pretty lousy news. We, of course, want the economy to grow generally, um, but it's relatively good. Right. This is way better than the 6.4% shrink in the first three months of the year. It's a sign that maybe, just maybe, we can hope, the economy is on the brink of actually, next quarter, the quarter after that, going up, which means no more recession. All right. We can only hope. All right. So, Adam, we've been talking about what got us into this recession. We've been talking to economists and all sorts of people about how to fix the financial system. How to write new rules. And what we've learned talking to economists, Democrats, Republicans, centrists, all, all across the spectrum, is that they're worried about things that are kind of different from, I think, what most, most of us, like non-economists, worry about. They're worried about the cost of bad regulation, and they're worried about inhibiting financial innovation. Right. And we're going to talk about some of those concerns today because it comes up over and over when you're talking to economists. But to the rest of us, it's just sort of, wait, what? What are you talking about? And specifically, let's just start with that second concern. We'll get to the first one later. The second concern, inhibiting financial innovation. Financial innovation, you yeah. know? Right. I mean, I picture, you know, a bunch of guys on Wall Street coming up with new ways to steal money from me or, you know, some lousy credit card scheme that that's going to hurt me. Right. But uh, – I think it's worth it at this time to to take a step back and think about all the things that we have gotten from financial innovation, all the benefits of financial innovation. And for me, that means talking about American life today compared to life in the Middle Ages. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so when when you think about our life today, what, what what's just normal, and you look at just some basic metrics. How many calories we can eat a day, how many, uh, how long we live, how tall we get, how healthy our lives are, how likely our children are to die. These basic measures, the life of any American today is so much better than the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived and is better almost certainly than anybody who lived more than, say, 200 years ago. So from like the dawn of humanity, 100,000 years or whatever it was ago, to about 200 years ago, every single person who lived, lived worse than the average American today. Okay, fine. But what does that have to do with financial innovation? All right, let me explain. So when you think about what, what was the magic thing that happened in the 1800s to make human life so much better now? I know, I know, I know. What, sir? The Industrial Revolution, technology, the cotton gin, textile machines, the steam engine. And obviously that is, you know, it, it, it created the conditions where the same amount of 
physical effort by a human being could produce much more output. So we went from needing, you know, 90 percent of human beings to produce enough food for us to less than 2 percent being able to produce enough food for us and on and on. Right. Okay. I'm still waiting for financial innovation. All right. So so what happened in the 1800s that made us suddenly have this technological revolution? It wasn't that people suddenly became brilliantly more ingenious in 1823 or something. It's that the way our society rewarded ingenuity, rewarded innovation, invention changed. And this, this moment right here, that, that is a really key, key thought here. And that is what has to do with financial innovation, the, the ability to reward a good idea. Exactly. That simple. Back in the Middle Ages, actually, frankly, most of human history and anywhere you look, Latin America, Asia, Africa, it doesn't matter. Most of human history, most people did what their dad did. If you were born a knight, like like I was in our radio drama. You, <laughs> Last week. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> right. You didn't have to be particularly smart or clever or good at being a knight. Uh, you could just go around grabbing stuff from peasants. And us peasants, as I was in our in our radio drama, if we, we, if we were smart or clever, we caught up, we came up with a good idea, we were geniuses at something, it didn't matter, you would just steal it, you knights, or the guild that I, maybe a competing guild, if I came, if I was a shoemaker and I came up with a better way of making shoes, some other shoemaking guild would burn my house down because they didn't want me to have a competitive advantage. Right. New ideas were punished, not rewarded, and so we didn't have a lot of new innovations. But financial innovation solved this problem. Let's just take a basic example Railroads. They transformed our way of life. They greatly increased our standard of living. We wouldn't live the way we live today without them. But there's a problem if you want to start a railroad. Right. If you want to start something big like a railroad or a factory or whatever, you you need a lot of money. And, you know, in the mid-1800s, nobody had enough money to start a big, you know, transcontinental railroad. So they needed lots of money from lots of different people. And And if you picture doing it without, say, the most famous and successful financial innovation, the common stock. Right. How would you do that? You get a million people together and each one gives a hundred bucks or ten bucks or a thousand bucks and you have a room full of lawyers. I mean, I'm picturing some nightmare scenario with guys with bowler hats and handlebar mustaches arguing for hours about, you know, am I liable if a train hits somebody? Am I, you know, can I get my money back if I lose faith in your company? All of these battles. That right. And, and, and the common stock, if you think about it, it just really solves a bunch of really key problems, which is sort of one of them is like, how do, how do you, the railroad, get access to those millions of people with their various varying amounts of money? But it also solves a problem for me if I have like $10,000 or 1,000 spare dollars or something like that, and I see this great idea of a railroad and I know it's going to take off, I can now take a piece of that action. Exactly. It makes everybody better off. It makes the owner of the railroad better off. It makes the investor better off. And it makes us who get to you know travel around the country and get cheaper meat from Kansas or whatever better off. Charles Calamiris is a financial historian at Columbia University. He's also an economist. He said this idea of financial innovation, extending it to stocks and bonds and interest rate swaps and on and on and on, is so crucial to our way of life. It is the golden goose, the financial system. You know, Rick Mishkin likes to say, the financial system is the brain of the economy, and I, I've adopted that view. I think it gets people to understand what you're talking about very quickly because you can't function without a brain. Why is it the brain of the economy? Because it's first and foremost, it decides how to allocate investable funds. We have a mechanism through the financial system of figuring out who should get money and who shouldn't. Uh, and when you give money to people who should, it makes us 
all more productive as a society. That basic function of allocating capital is at its core the most important single function that the financial system serves. But to allocate that capital, it also has to manage risk. It has to figure out how to share risk. We get then into derivatives products and other other kinds of innovative products. Investment banking products, they're very innovative, helping firms figure out how to raise funds in new ways. Communication globally that improves uh, our ability to track firms and evaluate them better and expand access to markets by being able to share risks globally. All of these things translate into being able to do more, better, faster, smarter, because the financial system ultimately is the brain of the economy. And financial innovation is about making your brain work better. All right. Here's where the, you know, but please, (laughs) economists, please. (laughs) You and I, you know, you and I have been basically making our career for the last two years doing stories of how financial innovation nearly brought down the world. And you're going to tell me that the no-doc option arm mortgage adds 10 years to my life, has made my life better in any way? Well, the interest-only no-doc option arm mortgage. (laughs) No, obviously not. No. Um, You know, there's actually this argument that you and I have really been fascinated by. I associate with some work being done at NYU Stern School of Business that since around 1980 or so, on-balance financial innovation has hurt the world, has made us a bit poorer. That's an argument we don't know yet. The data is not in. But um, but I do believe very strongly, I think it's pretty clear, that on balance, if you just take the category of financial innovation over the last two, three centuries, it has been a huge boon. Uh, the list is is endless. You know, the 401k, the mutual fund, interest-bearing savings accounts, commercial paper. I mean, I, I think you and I, when we learned about how amazing commercial paper is, the way it allows businesses that have a bit of extra cash at the end of the day to lend it to folks who need it for a few hours, that it provides this constant act flowing of funds that makes our economy work much, much better. I mean, that thing is awesome. Right. And that is why <laughs> commercial paper rocks, man. It's awesome. <laughs> so psyched. I love commercial paper. <laughs> so that's why it's tough, you know? I mean, like Congress wants to keep banks from being stupid and they want to keep banks from taking down the whole economy with them when they are stupid. But they also, if there is a good idea and occasionally they come up with one, That'll make us help. That'll help us all. They want to. They want. They want. They want to preserve that option. Right. The goose and all the golden eggs. <laughs> right. And we want them to be able to do that. Right. Which is why economists talk about financial innovation differently than the rest of us talk about it. Okay. So that's financial innovation. That's what they. That's what economists are thinking. Right. About. Let's not do something that ruins that. Right. Now, what about regulation? This seems like a no-brainer again to a lot of people. Right. Like we had clearly there weren't enough regulations in place. We just need to regulate more. That that's a view. Um, I'd, I'd say that the economists we talked to, again, left, right, and center, generally say there was a lot of regulation. There just wasn't smart regulation uh, all the time. Um, regulation is a lot of the time specifically designed to stop financial folks from pursuing their new ideas or shaping the way they do pursue new ideas. And it is very hard for regulators in Congress to know ahead of time to predict which new ideas will end up hurting us and which ones will end up helping us. Right. And then this is the other thing that economists know, I think, better than the average person. They study this all the time. The dangers of bad regulation. In other words, you can pass some new regulation that you think and everybody thinks maybe is going to help make everything better. 
but that it actually ends up, you know, through unforeseen consequences, making things actually worse. It doesn't just stifle innovation that might help us, but it actually increases bad things for us. So we asked Charles Calamiris uh, for an example of, of some regulation, well-meaning, what seemed like smart, sensible regulation that ended up hurting things. And he said the best example he can think of is from, from the 1990s, rules about how banks deal with the loans on their books. So the basic problem is this, you know, as, as we now know all too well, banks have all these different kinds of loans. You know, we now hear about bad assets, toxic assets, but back then it was just assets. And, and some loans are more, more risky. They're more likely to go bad. Some loans are less risky. They're safer. Um, and banks need to have some money on hand in case a loan goes bad. They call it equity capital. Right. And the idea is that the riskier your loan is, the more equity capital you have to hold. And so regulators from all over the world got together and came up with like which loans are risky, which loans are safer, and how much equity capital do you have to hold against the risky loans and how much equity capital do you have to hold against the safe loans. And we should just note that banks hate holding equity capital because that means they're not making a lot of money on it. So banks want to hold as little capital as possible. So uh, Charles Calamaris explained how this worked. The old rules said that mortgages are half as risky as commercial loans. Um, So what that means is if you set up a rule that says you only have to hold half as much equity capital against a mortgage as you do against a commercial loan, irrespective of whether the commercial loan is to a very low-risk company and whether the mortgage might be, let's call it a subprime mortgage, um, well, that's a rule of thumb that probably never made much sense, but certainly doesn't make sense when you have leverage ratios on mortgages that are, you know, at 100% and you have no docs mortgages and you have all those other things. Now, so as soon as you create a rule that says mortgages are half as risky as commercial loans, then maybe that rule encourages uh, behavior that is in the direction of making mortgages riskier. Now, I just want to make sure I understand this. We've done some reporting. We talked to one guy in the course of our reporting who got a loan who had you know he got a he got a half a million dollar loan and he had a he had three not steady jobs um, and he was making a combined income of about forty five thousand dollars a year. That guy got a half million dollar loan from a bank, and you're saying and I think never paid ever paid a payment or no I think he paid a payment but he was yeah he was far behind and and you're saying that the bank who made that loan to that guy um, say they had to hold some kind of capital against that loan. They had to say, okay, we're making this half million dollar loan, but we're going to hold what, $100,000 in capital, $10,000, $5,000, whatever. They have to hold some amount of money against that loan. And you're saying that if they had made that loan to IBM, they would have had to hold more capital? Well, that's definitely true. <laughs> it's really crazy when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah. And, 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 and listen to the point, which is that the very act of creating that rule made mortgages more risky because banks like risk. They don't like holding equity capital. The rules set up a way to take on more risk in exactly the area you don't want it to be. So um, I find this really profound because what he's saying, and, and lots of other people say, is that a lot of the problems we've been facing in the subprime crisis, I think Charles said 20% of the whole problem, something like that, um, are not the result of bad banks skirting good regulations. They're the result of banks obeying bad regulations. Now, I noticed you didn't say good banks obeying bad regulations. 
Well, look, to an economist, there's no such thing as a good bank or a bad bank. Well, right. there is, but but they don't really think of a bank in that way. They think a bank is just a profit-seeking machine. That is what it does. And the goal should not be to make banks become morally good. Banks are always going to, like all profit-seeking companies, are going to do whatever they can, generally within the law most of the time, to make money. And, and, I, and I'm not trying to argue that we're going to let the banks off the hook. Clearly, they did lots and lots of things, obviously, to create this crisis. Right. But the point is we need to encourage them to pursue their greed in ways that actually helps, not hurts us. All right. So this is all very theoretical, all, all the stuff we're talking about. So I'd, I'd like to bring it into the real world and see how this actually works. Right. So we talked to yeah, basically a financial engineer, Mike Konzal. Um, he's a blogger for The Atlantic. He also has a uh, job working for a financial firm that helps companies manage risk. Um, and we asked him a very simple question, what we thought was a simple question. We said, can you give us an example of a good financial innovation and a bad financial innovation from the last 20 years? And so he started with a good one. Sure. So we have we have the CDS instrument, right? Mm-hmm. And credit the CDS default instrument, swap. A credit default swap, which is a way of insuring against bonds. Um, I think the CDS instrument was very crucial in making the 2001 recovery after 9-11 and after the tech bubble, go much smoother. Because of Enron and because of a couple other large blowups, people were very nervous about taking on corporate debt. There's a lot of concern that, you know, there's systematic book cooking going on at all these corporations. So if you had money to lend, but you were nervous, you could insure part of it. So it became a little cheaper overall for everyone. Right. Basically, credit default swaps helped good companies borrow money more cheaply than they would have otherwise because everybody was so freaked out about Enron. All right. So there we go. We asked him for a good financial innovation, and he said, great, credit default swaps, great financial innovation. So then we said, the next obvious question, can you give us an example of a really bad financial innovation, something that really made the world worse? CDSs were also a terrible innovation because they allowed a lot of corporations to, or well, a lot of investment firms to skirt regulatory regimes. They, Basel II had certain requirements about how much debt you could take on, and the CDS was almost engineered to be able to sneak around that regulation. And Basel II is basically the rules governing banks and what they're allowed to do, right? Right. But wait, go back to the main thing here. We asked him for two different things. We asked him, what is the best innovation you can think of in the last 10 years? Credit default swaps. What is the worst innovation you can think of in the last 10 years? Credit default swaps. (laughs) So you're really making me see how complicated this area is because we asked you for one example of a really good financial product and... One example of a really bad financial product, and you gave us what gave us the same product, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think I think a lot of people are coming to that realization that um, you know a lot of these a lot of these innovations can be used to you know extend credit to make the economy more efficient, but on the other hand, they can also be used to kind of sneak by the rules we want everyone to play by, and then once one company sneaks by, everyone else has to kind of sneak by to keep up with them, essentially, to keep their, their numbers solid. So this is why I sometimes get a headache. Sometimes <laughs> right. have trouble sleeping at night because <laughs> it's so complicated. How do you create a regulatory system that rewards innovation and that rewards good innovation and punishes bad innovation when it's so often all the same thing? I know. It really is. And I, and I feel like that's why it's sort of like you see the appeal of sort of saying like, well, just ban it all or just allow it all. It sort of it allows it, it keeps you from having to sort of wade into this muddy middle area where it's really hard to figure out what's the right thing to do. And while I do reserve the right 
to become a rigid ideologue to avoid having to think about all this. For the time being, I think Planet Money will focus on this muddy middle and try to see what makes sense. Right. And we will be talking a, a lot more about financial innovation, good or bad. There's actually a really interesting argument that we're going to be discussing in an upcoming podcast about how for the last 20 years, maybe all of it's been bad. Maybe or a lot, on balance, it's been bad. Or on balance, it's been bad, right. And we're going to talk about that later on. Uh, for today, I think that wraps it up. Send us your ideas, your thoughts, your comments at the blog, npr.org slash money. Or send us an email, planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>